what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here was out last week so catching up on a few things like the oscar noms ice spice debut ep as well as a bunch of new stuff like little yachty's unexpected psychedelic rock album uh, Peacock's Poker Face from Ryan Johnson, starring Natasha Lyonne. And what is the other thing I'm talking about today? Oh, of course, Sam Smith's new album, Gloria. Yes, so uh, five hits for you there. Check the time codes below. Leave a comment. Tweet me. Let me know what you thought. But uh, yeah, let's get right into it. So let's go right to Ice Spice. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Ice Spice's debut EP, Like. So... I don't know if we would say there was a lot of hype for the debut EP, debut work from Ice Spice, but certainly a lot of eyeballs on it, because of course Ice Spice kind of blew up out of nowhere last summer with her viral song, Munch, the most significant New York drill hit in some time. Probably most significant since, I guess we could say K-Flock, but Notable because Ice Spice was making, you know, a quote, pop drill song versus, you know, it's not it's not as hard, it's not as aggressive as the stereotypical drill we think of when we think of New York drill. And Ice Spice, despite taking, uh, by her own admission, taking inspiration from like Chef G and Pop Smoke, she interestingly didn't really go down the sample drill path with the stuff that she had been giving us. And of course, when Munch comes out, it gets super viral. Obviously, Munch as a uh, pejorative term for men really took off in a hilarious way. Ice Spice herself, kind of an iconic look, gets that Drake cosign early on and kind of off to the races with her. And now we have this new EP, debut EP like, with a few more songs. Some of these songs had already been out. And I guess the question is, what kind of artist is Ice Spice? What kind of expectations should we put on her? Like I said, she hasn't really been doing sample drill. Sample drill has been so high and arguably so played out the past few years in terms of flipping popular hits and using those melodies, using those hooks to prop up drill verses. There's tons of evidence of this and tons of great, great examples of it too. It's not like it's all bad, but it's interesting that this like pop drill direction might be a new lane that perhaps is being pioneered by uh, the Bronx rapper Ice Spice. We'll see. But yeah, I mean, I think apart from Munch, which people know by this point, you know, I, I haven't like been loving the singles. Like Bikini Bottom, I thought was okay. Uh, In Ha Mood is probably the best of those. But I think there is something interesting about Ice Spice as a rapper, because if you look kind of beyond like the, the viral moments there is like bits of witty wordplay on the songs and i think the the humor that she imbues in that wordplay in that lyricism is it should, shouldn't be understated like i think that's actually like a really solid like like quality that she brings to the table here and that's where i would like love to see more of it especially if it's going down this pop lane you know the internet dubbing her like the princess diana of like rap and whatnot like lean into the meme, lean into the, the the humor of it all. I think that's probably the best path forward. Of the new tracks, I think the one I like the most would be Gangsta Boo with Lil TJ. I actually thought Lil TJ was pretty good on that. It's not something I've said uh, all too often. But 
yeah, I mean, it's only six tracks, you know. Um, she Has she surpassed Munch yet? No, she hasn't. But we'll see what it's like when the debut album rolls around. This was kind of, I think, just a getting a commercial release on the board kind of deal. Um, you know, she did a profile uh, with the New York Times basically saying as much. So, you know, we'll be listening for that full length for My Spice. We'll see what happens. But I do think there is something to her. And she unfortunately gets a lot more hate than I think she deserves. There are certainly significantly less capable rappers that get a fraction of that hate uh, because they're men. So let's give Ice Spice just a tad more time before people dogpile uh, on her with the hate. You know, I think there's certainly enough there with with the uh, the wit to uh, justify uh, listening for more. So yeah, we'll be, we'll be keeping an eye out for more Ice Spice uh, as the nascent career continues, but Leave a comment below. Let me know. What did you think of Ice Spice? Are you anticipating her next release? Uh, is it Munch and nothing else for, for you? Are you a Munch? Let me know. And for more rap, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, let's move on to Little Yachty's fifth album. Let's start here. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Lil Yachty's fifth album, Let's Start Here. And let's just say it. This is a rock album from Little Yachty, and a genuine, fully committed one at that. Little Yachty released a psychedelic rock album. Little Yachty took the walk, not to Poland, but to the dark side of the moon. This literally sounds like Pink Floyd. This is Little Yachty's Tame Impala record. And on one hand, a few years back, you never would have seen this coming. But I think more recently, it is a bit more believable. And I have to say... I'm kind of digging it. Too long of a record, but some of the moments I think are actually quite convincing. And m- m- above everything else, I'm just kind of like re-energized in my like fandom of Little Yachty. Yachty's been someone, you know, this is fifth album. The past four albums, for the most part, are not cohesive bodies of work. There are great highlights to his career to this point. He's not been a great album artist, at least with any consistency. And I think to be as inspired as he was to really commit to a rock record, something he had teased uh, in the past, too. didn't come completely out of nowhere, I guess. But this felt just awfully convincing to me. And if you think about it just a little bit further, Yachty has been showing us for some time that he's more talented and more interesting than... Perhaps the memes or the jokes or the internet banter would suggest. You know, of course, being a not insignificant songwriter, you know, writing for people like City Girls, his label mates at QC, uh, being an incredibly involved collaborator with Drake and 21 Savages, her loss. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that any of that should be understated. And of course, two years ago, almost, making the Michigan Boy Boat mixtape where he just basically went to Flint and adopted like, you know, the Flint, the Michigan uh, scene uh, flows and basically making a Flint rap album. Uh, The fact that he can really, I think, jump around within hip hop, obviously, of course, coming up as, you know, the king of SoundCloud rap and the the, the face of, you know, auto crooner uh, hip hop, you know, in 2016, we've seen a lot more since then. That's not what he had been doing. And now that we get the the rock album, 
or Miyadi, I guess it kind of makes sense. Because if anyone was to do it of his peers, I guess it was going to be Yadi. And that's um, that's just kind of cool to me. You know, I think Yadi's pretty fun personality, fun figure in hip hop. Obviously, he's been a largely low stakes artist. He'd probably be the first to admit that usually. But he seems to genuinely be taking pride in the fact that he did something greater and bigger than he had done in the past. So I give him a lot of credit for that. Will I listen to this new album, Let's Start Here? Will I listen to Let's Start Here a lot moving forward? No, I won't, but that's just because that's this is not really my bag more often than not. I'm not a big psychedelic rock guy. But, you know, run this song, run some of these songs back, you know, uh, I can't help but... uh enjoy some of it you know uh, i think um the black seminole and the ride and running out of time right off the bat like they're just kind of groovy tracks you know and i think like the drum production on a lot of these songs is quite enjoy enjoyable uh the vocals on drive me crazy are really awesome he does have some interesting collaborators on here as well and he kind of kind of matches or plays off of those vocals with his own vocals i think in a fun way um you know, I think uh, I, I've officially lost my vision. I've officially lost vision. I've been sent to a mental prison. That's probably the song that's closest to hip hop on the whole record in terms of like Yachty's performance anyway. But make no mistake, like the drum production, the consistent presence of guitars on this, it's a rock record. And it is certainly listenable, certainly interesting. And once in a while, I think there's some really fun moments like on The Alchemist. I think those vocals are incredibly impassioned, for example. Also notably, Poland, obviously the viral song from the fall, Yachty's biggest hit in several years. Poland's actually on this too. Hats off to him for sticking to the vision. Uh, and you know, who knows, maybe he can make a rock version of Poland and play out that further. Obviously that song's only like 80 seconds long, so you could you could uh, finagle the idea just a little bit more. But yeah, at the end of the day, Shout out Yachty for taking a big swing because he hadn't really done anything like that in a long time. And even if, you know, the Michigan Boy Boat mixtape is like cool for rap heads, right? This, I think, is just much more obviously bigger news and more exciting. So shout out Yachty. He's only still 25 years old. So there's a lot of potential for, for more. Who can say? what little boat will do for us next but yeah let me leave a comment below let me know what did you think did you like yachty's rock pivot did it just throw you for a loop did you leave your uh leave it scratching your head somewhere in between and for more hip-hop uh subscribe and i'll see you next time all right let's move on now to sam smith's new record gloria What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Sam Smith's fourth album, Gloria. Not an album I was excited about because I think, if we're being honest, Sam Smith as an album artist has been very disappointing to this point. Obviously, Sam Smith exploded, gosh, what was that, 10 years ago now with Latch, the Disclosure song of which he is, uh, they is featured on. And Sam... You know, I mean, that that song, Latch, was on my top 10 
songs of the decade. Absolutely love that track. And Sam Smith has amazing vocal strength. He is one of the strongest, you know, male vocalists uh, of this time. And despite all that, Sam has been a very disappointing artist in terms of the, like the total output. I've, obviously, Sam has put out strong ballads and strong singles over the course of those album cycles, but the albums themselves have been decidedly, I, I would say, lackluster in their, in their lack of ambition. The Sam Smith vocal talent is so evident, yet the albums never really felt like they matched that. And I think a big part of that was, despite Sam's ability to, you know, be a torch singer, give you an inspired ballad. Lyrically, not the most exciting artist, but either way, I think just production-wise, those Sam Smith vocals almost would fall on deaf ears in the sense that it was sleepy production more often than not. And my huge takeaway with Sam's new album, Gloria, is that it is clearly the best Sam Smith album that's come out to this point. And the reason that is is because the production is so much more interesting, so much more lively than anything we got in the past albums. It's almost like Sam realized that much like when he, uh, much like when Sam made a song with Disclosure, Sam sounds really good on dance pop and drum and bass and all that. It really livens up the Sam Smith vocals. And you just get that more often than not on Gloria, which is, which is great. You know, I think right off the bat, the album starts off so good with Love Me More, just a really engaging drum line right off the bat. You know, you get some of that interspersals of, of vocal dubbing. Sam vocals on Sam vocals just sounds really good because, again, they are always strong vocals. But when you make the song just a little bit more interesting, a little bit more lively, I think it goes a huge way. You know, No God, I thought was quite strong as well. Lose You, then of course, is a very familiar Sam Smith song in the sense that that is one of those, you know, heartbreak ballad songs. But again, it just feels a little bit more lively this time, you know, and that that production, the, the drum and the bass on that, I think just really goes a long way in elevating uh, this kind of song from Sam Smith. Uh, Jesse Reyes is a surprising feature on this, you have Jesse Race on this album three times. Thought Perfect was probably the best of those the first time uh, she she shows up, and then then of course we get Unholy, which was the very unexpected number one hit from Sam and Kim Petras at the end of last year. Ended up being one of the biggest songs of 2022, and Unholy is ultimately an album that feels, I would say, out of place on Glory in the sense that uh, I think that the tempo and the uh, lyrical subject matter is just a bit out of scope of what Gloria is largely about. Perhaps not surprising, given how we expect Sam Smith albums to go. But I think Unholy is is still like a really fun and, and, and admirable song. And, and, and will welcome, I think, like return to Sam just kind of giving you something fun and it's not quite like what Latch was in terms of appeal for Sam, but that production, and I think more importantly, like that like more directly explicit lyricism, or at least suggestive lyricism from Sam, I think to me goes a long way in, again, kind of livening up what Sam Smith is as a performer. And 
you know, obviously Unholy got a lot of Grammy nominations. And I think justly, you know, I think it's a pretty fun hit and has its own merits apart from the TikTok success. So it might, doesn't really fit on Gloria per se, but obviously it's just still be here. Yeah, I think the album from here kind of starts to fade. But to this point, I thought it was like just really hitting. And that's just not something I've ever said about past Sam Smith albums. You know, I think uh, How to Cry is like the first like real slow down moment, but still not too bad. Um, you know, Six Shots, again, you have that vocal dubbing that's really enjoyable. Uh, Gimme, I thought the coffee performance really stood out there. And then I'm not here to make friends, Jesse Reyes once again, but also Calvin Harris. Again, Sam Smith sounds pretty good on Dance Pop, Shocker. Um, you know, the Ed Sheeran uh, feature, the Ed Sheeran collab to end it. Not really my favorite's kind of sleepy. The sentiments kind of uh, well-trodden ground, you know, like same love kind of stuff. It's not anything too, I think, surprising. But the earlier stuff on Gloria, I just was surprised by how much time I had for it. And I think it's really just the production and the general tempo, the general energy that the rest of the song lends itself to Sam's vocals. Cause we know how strong the Sam Smith vocal performance will be just naturally. And to have songs that are just constructed in a more engaging way, when you match that with high end vocals, unsurprisingly, it, it it's pretty successful. So you know, I, I'm not. I don't think Sam has turned a new leaf in terms of like being a truly engaging lyricist. But I don't necessarily think Sam has to do that either because I think this really feels like a step back in the right direction, or at least a step back in a more interesting direction. So, you know, let me know what did you think of the new Sam album? Were you happy with this new direction? Did you want more stuff exactly like Unholy? Let me know. And for more pop music more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, and now we're going to talk about Peacock's new mystery series, Poker Face from Ryan Johnson, starring Natasha Leone. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Poker Face, the new Peacock mystery case of the week series from Ryan Johnson, starring Natasha Leone. Uh, this show is a delight, and I'm so happy it's out. First four episodes are out on Peacock now, one episode a week from here on out. And this show is so fun for how traditional it is, how old school TV it is. But because it's made by Ryan Johnson, there's just fun quirks that you might recognize if you've seen Knives Out. And because it's starring Natasha Lyonne, which also might be familiar, you've seen Netflix Russian Doll there's just a central performance that's really engaging. So I think this is a, a huge delight, a really fully formed series from what I've seen so far. And I really can't wait to continue watching the show. And really, really simply, the premise, you know, Natasha Leone plays Charlie, who is someone who is prenaturally gifted with the ability to tell when people are lying. Previously, I'd given her poker success. Uh, but... She finds herself determining, um, you know, crimes, basically figuring out what's going on. I think this kind of character lends itself quite nicely to a case of the week type uh, mystery series. And there are like a small, there is a small through line 
in terms of like a serialized storyline as well. But largely, each episode is self-contained, which means you just get to see Natasha Lyonne interact with guest stars played by famous actors. In episode one, that would be Adrian Brody. In subsequent episodes, we have Will Rel Howery, Chloe Sevigny. The guest star guest list for this series is quite long. You can you can look that up, and that's just really fun as well. You know, to have Natasha Lyonne kind of bounce off all these other great actors because. If you've seen Russian Doll, you've seen anything Natasha Leone has been in in the past few years since she came back into the zeitgeist. Just that kind of zany, manic, but ultimately just like really unique, fully formed character that Leone is able to play so effortlessly uh, is on full display once again in, in Poker Face. Uh, Charlie is a really delight of a character to be with just because Leon is just like such a tour de force. So, so effortlessly, like, the humor is there, the physical performance is there, and it just feels like a great character for Leon to, to play in, you know, and Johnson in terms of bringing what he's been up to lately into the series, it's quite fun to have some simple, but just fun nonlinearity episode to episode in terms of often getting introduced to the new characters first before Charlie comes into the fold. And then we catch up on things through Charlie's lens. That's all just, I think quite fun. And yeah, you know, to get something that's non-traditional, you know, obviously the last 10 years of TV have been dominated by strictly serialized storytelling, especially in the dramatic space. Right. And that is on one hand lent itself to the, the highest tough highs TV has ever achieved. But there is something to be said for a perhaps smaller stakes format that just kind of lends itself for, 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 for fun, fun writing, fun performing, fun guest acting, etc. So, yeah, I, I mean, this is the first Peacock show I've been excited about in a long time. Peacock largely has not excelled at delivering uh, standout original programming, but Poker Face, you know, shout out Natasha Leone, shout out Ryan Johnson. Seems like a great creative tandem thus far. Johnson has written and directed a handful of the episodes, not everything, but he's, you know, the kind of creative force behind the show uh, coming to be. So, yeah, I mean, if you, if you want to watch a new Columbo, this is this is it, honestly. So let me know what you thought of Poker Face so far. And for more TV, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. And now let's talk about the 2024 Oscar nominations, which... You know, came out about a week ago. Uh, I was away. Would have loved to talk about these sooner, but let's just get into them. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here talking, reacting to the 2023 Oscar nominations. I did my Oscar nominations predictions a few weeks back. Now we know who actually got nominated, what movies actually got nominated, and there are some prizes. There are snubs. There are exciting things about these noms, so let's just get into it. There's a lot to talk about. So yeah, I think um, largely speaking, Nothing is super out of the ordinary in terms of what happened in terms of the 2023 Oscar noms. Everything Everywhere All at Once leads the way with 11 nominations. Banshees of Inishirin and All Quiet on the Western Front followed up with nine apiece. You know, Banshees and Everything Everywhere are the two leading contenders. That's kind of how I think people were feeling going into this. Fableman's now seems to feel like a distant third in terms of our three best picture contenders to this point 
And of course, I'll be doing my actual Oscar predictions in the weeks to come once we get closer to the ceremony. Of course, the Oscars don't actually happen until March, so we still got some time. But uh, yeah, in terms of the nominations, you know, Best Picture, I was quite confident in a lot of thing, a lot of the movies getting in there, right? Oakland and Western Front, Avatar, Banshees, Elvis, Everything Everywhere, Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun. That eight was pretty safe, pretty locked in for the most part. Triangle of Sadness, I did pick to get in, but I wasn't sure what happened. It did get in. Feel good about that. Women Talking, though, Sarah Polly's film, that got in as, a, you know, you could say the 10th the tenth Best Picture nominee. That surprised me because Women Talking had been very under-nominated in the precursor awards to that point, so I was not expecting that. That, of course, comes at the expense of uh, Babylon, probably most notably, as well as perhaps Black Panther 2 or RRR, which we were wondering if that could potentially happen. Um, uh, Glass Onion as well, but no, it seems women talking uh, managed to rise above, which is which is great. You know, it's a, a film directed by a woman. It's a great. It was a really good movie as well. No, no, no women in Best Director this year after winning the past two Best Directors. So that's at least something along those lines. Best Director, pretty straightforward. The top four that we knew were going to be there were there: Mar McDonough, The Daniels, Steven Spielberg, Todd Field. The fifth spot, which was the one up for grabs, myself and basically everyone was saying, well, if the past few years are any indication, the international nature of the Academy will almost surely propel a international director once again to be nominated. The question was, of course, who would that be? Uh, I had picked Ruben Oslin, but I had started to change my tune um, after doing the, my predictions just because... Obviously, uh, Raj Mooley for RRR felt felt like a choice, but honestly, I was kind of expecting it to be Edward Berger, the director of All Quiet on the Western Front. After that movie got so many nominations and so many, uh, you know, craft nominations, as well, so yeah, that's probably the one. But no, it ended up being Ruben Oslin for Triangle of Sadness. So my gut was correct. Feel good about that. Uh, moving on, Best Actor. Again, that top four very uh, obvious. Austin Butler, Colin Farrell, Brendan Fraser, Bill Nye. That fifth spot, though, what was that going to be? I had acknowledged that it felt like it was probably Paul Mescal and After Sun just because there was a bit of confusion about who else could take that spot when it seemed pretty obvious it wasn't going to be Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick. And it ended up being Paul Mescal. You know, I, I liked, didn't love After Sun. He's the best part of that. And I am a huge fan of Paul Mescal, though. So that's a really kind of exciting nomination, notably. This is the first time since was uh, 19, uh, 1934 where all five Best Actor nominees are first-time nominees. Kind of wild that that's the case, but that is the case. Uh, Best Actress is decidedly not like Best Actor. There's a lot going on here, right? So at the top, you have your top two, the top two contenders, Michelle Yeoh, Kate Blanchett. We knew they were going to be there. Those only two people that can win. Got that done. From here on out, though, it's uh, quite interesting. I'd acknowledge Anda Armas, with Blonde, seemed to be rising with uh, Guild nominations. Uh, she did get in. Shout out Anna. Uh, Michelle Williams for The Fablements. I had not picked that to happen. I thought she was going to miss out, even though it's more of a supporting performance. I thought just the, the, the strength of this, this category, she was going to perhaps slip out. No, Michelle Williams did get in. So that one surprised me at least a little bit. But of course, the, the, perhaps the, the biggest, no, definitely the biggest, 
uh, talking point, the biggest flashpoint of the 2023 Oscar nominations would be Andrea Riseborough's nomination in Best Actress for To Leslie. I didn't really even acknowledge this in my predictions episode because this was such a late-breaking awards campaign that I just didn't think it was remotely possible. Of course, I had been picking Daniel Deadweiler for Till and Viola Davis for The Woman King to get in there in, in place of Riseborough and Williams. And the Andrea Riseborough campaign obviously is so notable at this point because it, it started off and became quite quickly like viral online, but it's notable in the sense that this was not a financed awards push by a film studio for an aspect of one of their movies. No, this was really a grassroots networking campaign in terms of Riseborough being connected to the rest of the industry and genuinely having that being pushed through. Now, on one hand, you can decry this kind of campaign for its elitism, its crassness. On the other hand, it's not unlike how awards campaigns have worked in the past. And the fact that it truly was grassroots and not just a big money dump in terms of promotion, you know, in a sense, I would tip my hat to the fact that they were able to pull this off. How ethical was it? You know, we don't know the whole story still, but it the, the gross part to me, though, is that a, a, a white woman and all of her wealthy white friends, for the most part, were able to get this nomination and it freezes out Viola Davis and Daniel Deadweiler, two black women. Um, that does make you feel a bit off, a bit gross. Um, I haven't seen Too Leslie, to be to be clear. Few people have. It has been well-received. But this is really, I think, one of the most surprising successful awards campaigns in terms of nomination in, in recent memory, honestly. And it's certainly notable. You know, Vila Davis not getting in there. She's been nominated a lot past few years i think will be okay more than anything i'm just disappointed that the woman king gets completely blanked no nominations at all it's a tremendous movie but felt like it perhaps lost out in a year where there were other bigger blockbuster movies to fill that void instead a bit disappointing um daniel deadwell i'm sure she'll be back she's a great actor and tremendous on station 11 on hbo for example so been unfortunate for them but it's it's a interesting story that you rarely see in terms of nominations. So that that that's something. Uh, best supporting actor. Uh, the top three, uh, not, not surprising: Kiwi Kwan, Barry Keown, Brendan Gleeson. No shocks there. Uh, Judd Hirsch was the Fableman's nomination, not Paul Dano. I figured Paul Dano would get in there. No, he 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 misses out. Judd Hirsch gets in there, sets the record for most time between nominations, 42 years. That's pretty cool. And then the fifth spot, even more surprisingly, but I'm very happy about, would be my guy Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway, the Apple TV Plus film with Jennifer Lawrence. Tyree Henry, you know, great great uh, performance, great presence in that movie. I just didn't think there was much of a campaign for his performance. I certainly did not think he would cross cross through there, but definitely a welcome surprise. And Tyree Henry, I think for people that know him, has been one of like the great actors the last you know five six years at this point. So 
this is a, is a really welcome welcome nomination. Of course, I think he was certainly deserving of a nom, you know, a few years back for if Bill Street could talk, for example. So this is really cool. I'm really happy for him. Uh, best supporting actress, a bit more straightforward. Angela Bassett, Hong Chow, Carrie Condon, Jamie Lee Curtis, Stephanie Sue. I guess the only surprise there is that both Curtis and Stephanie Sue, for everything everywhere, they both got in. You know, that was the thing I was kind of picking against. I thought perhaps Dolly DeLeon for Triangle of Sadness would probably bump Stephanie Sue out. No, it didn't happen. More than anything, I think that shows just how strong everything everywhere is this year in terms of uh, best picture. Um, so that's like the, you know, that's the core awards uh, right there. You know, uh, if we keep looking, you know, everything everywhere in Banshees, they both have best picture, best director, and original screenplay nominations in addition to four acting nominations. That just really shows you that that's like the cream of the crop this year. I think that's kind of kind of clear. Um, you know, if you look at a best international feature film, I think there was a big shock here. All Quiet on the Western Front, with the, the favorite, was of course here, Best Picture nominee as well. So, well, in addition to Argentina in 1985, Close, and EO, I had predicted all four of them to get in. However, South Korea's decision to leave from Park Chan Wook is not here. Really mind blowing to me. In its place, you have uh, a movie I have not seen yet, The Quiet Girl from Ireland. Gosh, I mean, Tal Buchanan at the New York Times, to his credit, had acknowledged that he had a feeling that decision to leave was a bit polarizing with the Academy. I think it's a really admirable movie. I liked it quite a bit. It's in my top like 13 on the year, whatever. I thought for sure it would get in, especially because Park Chan-wook is so celebrated in the, you know, the international film community. And also because his last film, 2016's The Handmaiden, did not get into this category either. Surely they were going to make that up with such a strong effort this year. But no, it didn't get in. Uh, that really really shocked me, especially because if I was going to pick something to bump it out, I would have picked perhaps uh, the Corsage with Vicky Kreps, for example. I, w- I wasn't even thinking of The Quiet Girl. So that that's quite the quite the surprise to me, honestly, um, and a bit of a shame because I think Decision to Leave is really great. Um, moving on, you know, I think Best Original Song, uh, this, this in and of itself is not surprising, but just really cool to have this much actual star power in the category in terms of Lady Gaga, uh, Rihanna, uh, uh, Natu Natu, of course, from RRR, which will be the winner. Um, and who am I forgetting? Gosh. Um, uh, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, and... Oh, David Byrne, of course. Yeah, uh, exciting category. Um, yeah, I think um, everything else, you know, nothing too shocking. Um, animated feature, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcellus Shell with Suzanne, Puss in Boots 2, Turning Red from Pixar. And then the fifth spot, I'm very happy to see, is Netflix, The Sea Beast. A movie I liked quite a bit. I thought perhaps Netflix was going to push Wendell and Wild through, but no, they got the CBS in there. That's really exciting. That's really fun. Um, yeah, so we'll leave it at that. I think um, overall, nothing too shocking apart from the really baffling stuff with Andrea Riseborough. So uh, stay tuned for my Oscar predictions later in March and let me know who you were excited to see get nominated, who got snubbed uh, in your opinion. And for more movies, more Oscars, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a reaction to the new DC Studios slate from James Gunn and Peter Safran that we got today. Yes, DC 
is revamping what they're doing. A lot of actors are out in their past roles, such as Henry Cavill, Superman. And we got the first look at what the future of DC movies and television shows will be from Gunn and Saffron. Chapter one of this DC universe titled Gods and Monsters. Now, whether you were happy about this new leadership change, these casting changes or not, I think the one thing everyone should be happy about about this change is the stability that it presents. And that's a stability that had been lacking with DC films and the DC franchise in general for the last 10 plus years, unfortunately. You know, we never really had that creative steward under Walter Hamada with that DC films brand. Zack Snyder was part of it, but not the entire head of it. Joss Whedon coming in, kind of revamping what things were being done. The direction creatively was never clear and never consistent. And whether you like Gunn or not, you like what's going to happen or not. Ultimately, I think it's too early to say that you would dislike what's going on. We haven't gotten anything yet, but there's at least a coherent plan, a thought, full serialized storytelling plan. And that is just what needs to happen with franchise storytelling. Think about like the James Bond movies, post Daniel Craig, for example. They will be much more serialized, which is not how they used to be. That's just how blockbuster storytelling needs to exist these days. And, you know, I think Gunn and Saffron, what they presented so far for this DC studio slate is at least promising and is at least presenting a coherent plan. So we know that Superman is being recast. Uh, Superman Legacy is opening on July 11, 2025. Gunn will be involved creatively in that movie in some way, whether he ends up directing it or not. Um, sounds great because they notably said that there was well, not this will not be an origin story for Superman once again. Much like how Tom Holland was introduced by Sony and Marvel as a new Spider-Man, people get it. We can just keep it moving. I think that's a really good idea for such a popular and famous character. Uh, we also have this kind of event ensemble movie called The Authority that was announced. Sounds cool. Um, Saffron kind of invoked Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, which is which is a bit funny, a bit uh, a bit rich, but still still sounds cool. And of course. They also announced The Brave and the Bold, a new Batman film, notably that will encounter Robin, specifically Damian Wayne. Uh, sounds exciting. Sounds fun. Once again, a new Batman. Uh, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, another movie that was announced. Really excited to have Super Supergirl for the first time. Sounds like a good idea. And unsurprisingly, Swamp Thing was announced as a movie. Not that Swamp Thing specifically is unsurprising, but just the fact that DC undergun, but DC in general, will strive to introduce characters beyond the Justice League purview, less famous characters, because going beyond the A-list is, I think, a key to the franchise's success moving forward. Look no further than Marvel, where famously, of course, James Gunn brought the Guardians of the Galaxy out of obscurity. But even before that, Iron Man was not an A-list comic book character by any means when Robert Downey Jr. first played him in 2008. So I think this is a great idea to bring in less uh, notable characters and figures into uh, the story. Uh, on the TV side of things, same thought, Creature Commandos as this kind of obscure team on HBO Max. Sounds cool. Uh, probably the most surprising thing that was announced to me is a spinoff series off the Suicide Squad 
titled Waller with the return of Viola Davis, notably Viola Davis, a character cast with the old regime. Um, her coming back, I guess you could fit it in. It's no big deal. But it is interesting that that's a clear, intentional choice to re- retain previous casting and a previous character moving forward. So we'll see. And I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, more things spin off of Peacemaker and stuff kind of directly involved and we'll see. Um, perhaps the most exciting thing of all to me on the TV side of things would be Lanterns, a Green Lantern series featuring both Hal Jordan and uh, John Stewart. Notably, <laughs> uh, Gunn and Saffron invoked True Detective as a comp for this series, which brings me right back to the Russo brothers describing the Winter Soldier as the Parallax View, classic quote director bullshit that we get. But even the idea of something vaguely True Detective esque with the Green Lanterns sounds fun. Also, uh, on, on HBO Max, uh, Paradise Lost, a Wonder Woman you know, spin off series set on Themyscira, described as a Game of Thrones ish story. If we get anything as dramatic in scope and as impressive in the writing department, from DC or Marvel for that matter, uh, that's, that's a welcome decision. So hopefully they can hit that bar with Paradise Lost. We'll see. And then uh, another another good one is uh, Booster Gold on TV. Another obscure character bringing it in. Uh, sounds like a good idea to expand the roster. Booster Gold had been bandied about as a project for some time. I'm curious if this is a brand new pitch, brand new idea, or if it's being recycled in some way. Who can say? The one thing that's still a bit I guess, unsure or hard to put your finger on with what DC's up to these days is the fact that we're still going to get another Batman film from Robert Pattinson and Matt Reeves. We're still going to get another Joker film from Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix. Will Lady Gaga join the mix? These Elseworld stories are still coming in the short term, and it sounds like the Colin Farrell Penguin series is going to production uh, this year. So again, these Elseworld stories kind of fly in the face of a coherent you know dc universe i would not be shocked if these elseworld attempts fade away once we are further removed from these ones that are currently in progress and notably these ones currently in progress were very successful and i was actually pretty uh congratulatory or, or uh, happy to see dc be less enthused with continuity in the past and just kind of take pitches and make good stuff, work with talented people. And that's how you got the Batman, you got Joker. And does that mean you get multiple Batmans at one time, multiple Joker characters at one time? Yes, that's what it meant. But at least they were trying to make good stuff. Now, that being said, if you're going to reset and make a fully coherent franchise story, it probably makes sense to really keep everything in-house. And if you want to work with the tours, and make stuff outside the box, do it in the purview of your universe. I don't think that's actually too big of an ask. So uh, we'll see if this kind of approach continues moving forward, because ultimately Gunn and Saffron in this new DC regime, they have to kind of thread the needle, right? Because Shazam 2 coming out this year, The Flash with Ezra Miller is coming out this year, Aquaman 2 is coming out this year, Blue Beetle is coming out this year. Those are not movies from this regime. They are relics of the past, and it sounds like Blue Beetle will remain, but everything else is kind of feeling like a, an endpoint or at least a, a, a transition type of story. So we're not really going to get this new regime, this new plan, this this phase one of this new DC slate. We're not going to get that until like 2025 anyway. So 
we really won't see the fruits of the labor for some time. And in the meantime, we'll be getting other stuff that has been in the can for some time. So it is a bit interesting, but that's kind of the hand that Saffron and Gunn were dealt. They obviously couldn't, nor should they want to, you know, can these films and not put them out. Uh, obviously, background notwithstanding. So, you know, all things considered, I think this is a coherent step forward, and they're presenting a realm of uh, a frame of strength at the helm of DC, which is how you want your franchise properties to be treated, given we how we know how important IP storytelling is to finding success uh, in entertainment. What and unfortunately, as it may be, that's just how it is. So. It sounds like Warner Bros. Discovery is fully committed behind this new leadership. We hope that stands uh, the test of time because it certainly didn't with past leadership. But again, Warner Bros. Discovery as a whole is a brand new company with new leadership. So I think you just have to have some faith in how it's being portrayed, but also know that we have to sit on our hands and wait for this to play out for a few years before we can really say how it's going to go. So in the meantime, uh, Leave a comment. Let me know what are you happy about that got announced? What do you wish got announced that wasn't yet? What are you looking forward to? And for more movies, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.